Please have a seat. Can I get you to turn with me, please, to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3, on page 858. It will also be helpful um, for you to have this outline you received as you came in. If you have that open in front of you, you can see where we're going. Uh, But 1 Peter chapter 3, page 858. In this letter that uh, Peter writes, uh, that we've been reading together over the past month or so, uh, the Apostle Peter calls us elect strangers. We have been chosen, elect by God, chosen to belong to Him in a very special way. But in the people of this world, we are strangers. We think differently and we act differently. We have different values, different priorities, different goals. And over the last last couple of weeks, we've seen what some of those differences are. We've looked at the difference in our behavior in society, in the workplace, in the home, and in the church. And we've been especially thinking about this in light of Peter's injunction in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Living differently does lead to God's glory. And that's ultimately what we're on about. But living differently can also lead to persecution because people generally like conformity, not difference. And so the pressure will always be on to to conform to the world. And sometimes that pressure can lead us to suffering. We can get harassed and ridiculed or ostracized, discriminated against. We suffer for doing good. And so today that's what the issue that that Peter is addressing for us. The issue of suffering for doing good. Now, suffering for doing good, at one level at least, should be somewhat surprising. Peter says in verse 13, he says, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Literally, it's, who is going to harm you if you're you're zealous for doing good? Zealots were like nationalist radicals, freedom fighter type people. And so, naturally, the government looks on them suspiciously. But but Christians aren't meant to be political zealots. We're to be zealots for good. Zealous, eager, ardent pursuers of goodness and purity and love in our lives. And that shouldn't be a threat to anyone, should it? But Peter knows that ought is not will. Ought not is not will not. And Christians can show exemplary behavior in society, in the workplace, in the family, and in the Christian community, and still be condemned. Peter warns and encourages in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. There is a blessing in suffering for doing what is right. Now, Peter knows this because Jesus himself taught him that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
If you suffer for doing what is right, if you suffer for Jesus, then God will reward you. Doing the right thing might lead to disadvantage now, but it will not lead to disadvantage in the end. God will look after you. If you suffer now, you are blessed. And Peter quotes the Old Testament book of Isaiah. He says, uh, second half of verse 14, he says, Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. In Isaiah 8, which we read in our Old Testament reading, the foreign armies were threatening Judah. People were frightened because of the, the political and military threat. Remember what God said in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 to 15? He said, Do not call conspiracy everything that people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Don't dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you ought to regard as holy. He is the one you ought to fear. He is the one you ought to dread. See, God was saying, He is a bigger threat than those foreign armies. God could save them from their enemies. God could bring judgment upon them. The thing there was to fear was not the enemy, but the Lord. And friends, that's what Peter wants the Christians who are facing persecution to remember as well. Don't fear the persecutors, fear the Lord. He's the one who really holds you in his hands. He's the one who really controls your destiny. And if you suffer for doing good, he will bless you and vindicate you in the end. So what are we to do when we face persecution or ridicule, ostracism, discrimination for Christ? Now Peter gives us three principles. Firstly, we're to know who our Lord is. Verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. The word set apart there means sanctify or make holy. Um, in Isaiah chapter 8, which we saw just now, the Lord was Yahweh, the God of Israel, and it says he is to be regarded as holy. But here, Peter says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Regard him as holy. Trust him, love him, fear him. Treat Jesus in the same way as the Israelites of the Old Testament were meant to treat Yahweh their God. Because that's who the Lord Jesus is for us. And he's the one to fear. Set him apart as Lord. And having known who our Lord is, we are to know what the truth is. And be ready to communicate it. So the second half of verse 15 Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you. Now we've seen how Peter advocated a, a Christian lifestyle in front of the world. Um, and that lifestyle is going to lead to questions. Some of them will be curiosity questions. Some of them will be hostile questions. And some of them will be questions that come from the heart. But whatever the case is, we need to be ready to answer. It doesn't mean that we have to know everything about everything, or have an answer for every question. But we need to be able to articulate the gospel. We need to be able to explain what the faith is to others. We need to be able to say, yes, I do have a hope in heaven, and, and here's why. Be prepared to give an answer. 
wonder if you'd be prepared to give an answer if someone asks you uh, what the reason is for the hope that you have. Well, if you don't, then don't worry. Help's on the way. We'll run a training program to help you prepare it. And I'll talk to you about it later in the announcements. But whether you use the training or you do it yourself, whatever it is, make sure that you are able to explain who Jesus is, why he came, what he's done for us. What is the hope that you have? Because sooner or later, if you live your life in a way that points to Jesus, someone, either friendly or hostile, is going to want to know why. And be prepared to answer them. The third thing Peter wants to tell us is how to communicate the message. At the end of verse 15 he says, But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The word translated respect there is, is actually fear, still referring to the fear of the Lord. And we fear the Lord, and so we will speak to people in a way that He wants us to. And how does He want us to do it? He wants us to do it with gentleness. And the word gentleness also can mean humility, consideration, meekness. We saw that word last week, didn't we? Uh, in the context of wives with their non-Christian husbands. That's the opposite of being arrogant or contentious. The opposite of always like being wanting to fight, that kind of thing. And Paul says we'd all show that quality in the way we answer outsiders. In our conversations, we are to gently lead people to the truth. Not try to score points. We're not trying to impress them with our knowledge. Not trying to dazzle them with our skills or beat them down with, with our superior intellect. We fear the Lord. And so we must explain the gospel in a godly way to those who ask us. We'll just speak the truth in love. And we must do so, Peter says, with a clear conscience. Knowing that if and when, and it's going to be when, people charge us with doing wrong, there'll be no truth to it. See, brothers and sisters, people will make all kinds of statements and they'll speak all kinds of rubbish against us as individuals and as a community. It's going to happen. People will feel threatened and people will start rumors. And we can't stop them. And we mustn't be vindicative towards those who start rumors. What we need to do is make sure there is no grounds for people to accuse us. We must make sure that there is no truth to any of the charges people have against us except the charge of loving God, doing good and promoting the gospel. And if we still, if we're doing that and we suffer for it, that's okay. Verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's okay to say it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, but, but is it really? Now, what's, what's the evidence for it? Well, Peter gives it to us. Firstly, he points to Jesus as the paradigm of the one who suffers for doing good. He's the best one who suffered the most. So, verse 18, he says, Christ died, or actually literally suffered, 
for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus was the righteous one, the good one, the one who lived life as we were meant to. We were the unrighteous ones, the bad ones, the sinners who haven't. But he, the righteous one, suffered so that you and I, the guilty ones, can come to God. There is no other way sinful people like you and me would be able to approach a holy God. All we deserve was God's condemnation. But Jesus Christ suffered for us. He died for our salvation. He he bore our guilt, our, our curse, our punishment on the cross. And He did it once and for all. He dealt with our sins completely. So He never needs to do it again. Jesus Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus was the ultimate innocent sufferer. Now look what happened to this ultimate innocent sufferer. The second half of verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Actually, it's literally it's put to death in or by the flesh, and made alive either in or by the Spirit. Okay? That is, he was put to death in this present body, the, the flesh, the body that is subject to decay, the body that will not last forever, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Now, alive in the Spirit doesn't mean his resurrection body wasn't physical. Right? Right? Alive in the Spirit, we, we, we know that his resurrection body was physical, it was his physical body transformed, but in the Spirit means it, it wasn't perishable. A spiritual body is an imperishable body, an eternal body, one without the limitations of our present bodies, which is called the flesh. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. People killed him, God raised him up. He suffered in his perishable body, he was vindicated in his imperishable body. God turned the tables on those who opposed him. The innocent sufferer was vindicated. Suffering for doing good, even dying for doing good, eventually pays off. However, suffering for doing evil does not. And Peter illustrates this as well by pointing out that the one who suffered the most for doing good how he relates to the one who, who suffered the most for doing evil. Just listen to me a tick. Judy's going to sort out that noise from the outside. Is it distracting you? It's distracting me. Anyway. Um, the, one, the one who suffered the most uh, for doing good how does he relate to the people who suffered the most for doing evil? Well, we see in the next section, the risen Christ, who had been made alive by the Spirit, or made alive in the Spirit, rather, went and preached to spirits in prison. Verses 19 and 20. Through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God was waiting patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. Now, the Spirit 
sent Jesus to preach to spirits in prison. Now what's this spirits in prison thing? It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? What's going on here? Well, we are helped by the fact that this is not the only time that, that Peter mentions these spirits. Right, if you go to 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 is on the screen, he says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, uh, or literally Tartar, Tartarus, putting them into, no, not Tartarus, <laughs> Right, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Right? Tartarus was a, considered to be a place of punishment and imprisonment. That's why it's translated hell here. But it's not the same word that we usually use for hell. It is lake of fire that comes after the, the final judgment. So we see in 2 Peter that there are fallen angels in some kind of captivity held for the day of judgment. Right? Now the other place we find them is in Jude 6. In Jude 6 we read this. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on the great day. So, the Bible teaches there are spirits, angels who disobeyed God long ago, by abandoning their own home, which he has kept in prison until the final day of judgment. We don't know much about them. Uh, 1 Peter 3 says these spirits in prisons were the ones who disobeyed God back in Noah's time. And if we went back to Genesis 6 and the story of the flood, it opens with a very strange passage about sons of God who came and married daughters of men. And we think maybe these sons of God are these disobedient angels that Jude was talking about and banning their home. Um, how many of them there were or how it worked, we, we don't know. But it seems to have happened back at the time of Noah and they seem to have been wiped out quickly with the flood. Now, I've got to say, this is not the only interpretation of this data, though I think, as strange as it sounds, it seems to me to be the best fit. Uh, second best theory is that Peter and 1 Peter is talking about Jesus uh, preaching through Noah to his generation, but I think that's stretching it for all kinds of reasons. Now, if this theory that I've explained is right, and I think it is, then what Jesus is preaching or proclaiming to the spirits in prison is not repentance unto salvation he's preaching his victory if you go on to verse 22 you see that he has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels authorities and powers in submission to him even the ones who tried to rebel under Noah in Noah's time long ago see his preaching must have been a, a declaration of victory saying you are under me I am God's risen king the lord of the universe all angels authorities and powers of submission are in submission to me all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me that includes you now why is Peter telling us this is he going on some wonderful tangent no friends remember what remember what he said before it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What's the best example of suffering for doing good? Jesus. Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. What's the best example of suffering for doing evil? Who has suffered the most for evil? Well, probably be these rebellious angels who have been in prison for thousands of years who heard the proclamation of their final defeat and could only look forward to the final judgment from the one who suffered for doing the most good. Now who do you want to be like? 
whose fate do you want to share? Because either way you'll suffer. Do good on Jesus' side, and while that leads to suffering now, in the flesh, it leads to ultimate vindication. Suffer for evil on their side, you know where that leads. So in the end, friends, it is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Now that Peter is talking about Noah and the flood, he's going to use that to illustrate his other point. It's a point about the fact that we've been saved from evil. And he's going to go on and speak about the ark that was built at the time of Noah. It goes on to say in the second half of verse 20, In it, that's the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now notice the salvation here was not from water, but there was salvation was through water. In other words, what Noah and his family were being saved from, according to Peter here, is not the waters of the flood, but the corruption of society around them. It's the water that actually saves them. You see? And, and though the water on the world, uh, which occurred only... Uh, the, sorry. Although the water... Let me try that a bit again. <laughs> although the water... Uh, that, that covered the earth uh, got rid of that, that, uh, that sinful human society uh, what it did is it saved him from that negative influence on them they were actually saved through the water okay. now, I always thought the passage said it was saved from the water except I looked at it really carefully and it's actually saved through the water and how does that relate to us? well Peter says we too have been saved through water because the waters that separate us from the sinful society around us are not the waters of the flood, but the waters of baptism. Verse 21, he says, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. See, we are saved from the corruption of the world by becoming Christians. And when we become Christians, we become different. And becoming Christians closely linked to being baptized. And so you can say that we are saved from doing evil through baptism. But Peter doesn't want us to misunderstand that it's the water, the water that saves, really. Right? It's, it's really the sign on the outside that what saves is going on the inside. And so he quickly clarifies his statement in, in verse 21. He says, the water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Now, this could be translated alternatively, a plea for a good conscience from God. Okay? So either Peter is saying it's a pledge of a good conscience, it's a promise to follow Christ and be different from the world, or it's a plea for a good conscience, a plea for forgiveness, a cleansing from sin, a fresh start. I think it's a plea right, because of the parallel with the removal of dirt from the body. Uh, the plea for a clean conscience, a washing clean. But the reason the plea or the pledge is powerful is not in the plea or pledge itself. At the end of verse 21, 
It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. You see, because Jesus is Lord, because he has conquered, because he is vindicated, because everything is in submission to him, then our plea is effective. He is the risen victorious king. He has power over all forces, including the forces of evil. And nothing and no one can stop us to plead to him from being saved by him. And so when we cry out to him to deliver us, to save us from evil, he will do that. And there is not an angel or demon or authority or power in the spiritual realm that can stop him. 